Welcome to the show that gets Christians thinking about faith and politics. Get ready to challenge the status quo, expand your imagination, and tackle controversy head on. Let's stand together at the intersection of faith and freedom. It's time for the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Welcome to another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast, a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute and part of the Christians for Liberty Network. I'm your host, Doug Stewart, and I'm joined by another podcast host, Patrick Miller of the Truth Over Tribe podcast, and he teaches at 10-Minute Bible Talks. He's co-author with Keith Simon of the book Truth Over Tribe, Pledging Allegiance to the Lamb, Not the Donkey, or the Elephant. Patrick, thanks for joining me. Oh, it's fantastic to be here. All right, I've got a complaint right off the bat. Your subtitle, you can blame yes. your publisher, I'm sure. Your subtitle does not include a porcupine. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry that I've offended you and all your listeners. But if it makes everyone feel better and not the porcupine, is, is that what you're looking for? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. That's about right. So I found your book because I buy books on Amazon. And lately, one of the things that LCI has been sort of focusing on in our preparation for an event that we're doing later this year or participating in later this year is we're looking into things like nationalism, wokeness, tribalism in all kinds of ways. And so your book naturally came up on my recommended reading list through Amazon because of the other books I was buying. And I looked at it and I was like, well, this looks really, really good. So I bought it and here we are talking about it. And so I want to talk to you about tribalism. And why don't you just give us a sense of like, well, what is tribalism and what makes that a problem? Because I know some people don't think it's a problem as long as we're not violent. It's funny you say that because probably the worst mistake we made in a book about tribalism is that we failed to define tribalism. <laughs> now we're in the book where you find a clear definition. Now that's in part because I think it's something that most people naturally understand. But if I were to define it, I would describe it as a us versus them mentality. Tribalism is any time that you find yourself thinking with the group, having a attitude that says anybody outside the group is an outsider, someone to be defeated, someone to be questioned, someone to be doubted. Tribalism is really fundamentally innate in all humans. So I feel for the person who says tribalism isn't bad if what they're saying is no one isn't tribal. We are all tribal. That's part of human nature. And we can get into that in a second. The question is, what kind of behavior, what kind of ethics does that tribalism lead us toward? And does Jesus in some ways reconfigure tribalism in a way that allows us to live out his politic, his way of being in the world? I like the word reconfigured tribalism because I think that that's part and parcel of what it means to join the tribe of Christ, if you will. Yeah. So, yeah, I really like the way that you do that. I mean, I know a lot of people think that because tribalism is just sort of natural. I mean, where do you come down on the it would have happened had the fall not happened anyway? Well, that's a good question. And I don't know that the Bible has a explicit, clear answer, but this is the way that I've thought about it. Tribalism has both a bright side and a dark side. Tribalism is the thing that allows us to care for people who are like us. Tribalism is the thing that allows us to gather together to do tremendous things. Cheetahs aren't tribal, but they also don't build cities. Cheetahs aren't tribal, and yet they also don't create holocausts. They also don't create gas chambers. And so there's a dark side to tribalism because the dark side of tribalism is the way in which we begin to 
hate outsiders, the way in which we want to harm outsiders. And so I think if you go back to the Garden of Eden and you look at Adam and Eve and God's original calling for them to be fruitful and multiply and to subdue the earth and spread the Garden of Eden until it encompasses the whole of creation, that was a deeply tribal activity. But Adam and Eve didn't have an out group. There wasn't a group to hate. So again, we can look at this both biblically, but we can also, I think, look at it a bit scientifically. One of my favorite studies is by a guy named Karsten DeDrew. And he was trying to figure out how to end tribalism. And he had this wild idea. He thought if we just put oxytocin, which is the love drug, this is the chemical that's released, for example, when a mom has a baby and she's looking at the baby and the baby's looking at the mom, oxytocin's released. It, it creates a bonding between people. And so he thought, hey, if we just put oxytocin in the water, we'll all be more loving. And so to do this, he actually had an interesting test. He had a control group that didn't receive oxytocin, and he had a different group that did receive oxytocin. And he discovered that the group that received the oxytocin, they were more empathic. They were more willing to self-sacrifice for other people inside the group. They had a greater sense of belonging. So, hey, there we go. We can end tribalism. There was just one problem. The group that received more oxytocin was also more negative towards outsiders. They were more willing to try to win at the expense of outsiders. And so even in that little kind of study, you see both the bright side and the dark side of tribalism. I think that's a really fascinating study because, (laughs) as you say, the tribalism part didn't go away, even though people, quote unquote, got better or got the drug that meant that we thought we would get. I mean, it's a great thesis, right? Yeah, yeah. It's a fun idea. And I think the interesting thing here for me is, again, when we look at the biblical story, it's not until we get to the table of nations, kind of what life is life east of Eden, that we begin to see humanity dividing up into Mm -hmm. different tribal ethnic groups. And when we get to the end of the story, there's a beauty in that diversity, right? In Revelation, it says that the kings of all the nations are going to come to, well, this is actually Isaiah, the kings of the nations are all going to come and bring the glories of their cultures before the throne of Yahweh. In Revelation, it says that people from every tribe, tongue, and nation are going to worship Jesus. But that actually illustrates the point. The final vision is of people from these different tribes coming together to form a singular human family. And not one in which they lose their tribal differences, but one in which they're able to celebrate one another's tribal Mm -hmm. differences. And again, this is how Jesus really reconfigured things inside of the church. Because again, normal tribalism looks like exclusion, okay? If you're not like me, you can't be a part of my group. But tribalism inside of the kingdom looks like this. Everybody is welcome. Jesus says there's no one who is not welcome to partake in his grace and receive the gift of salvation from him. Another way that tribalism works normally is that insiders usually want to win at the expense of outsiders. But Jesus calls people in his tribe to put the outsider first, to love your neighbor as yourself. And so it's not that the Jesus tribe isn't tribal. It's that it's kind of the anti-tribe tribe tribe because Mm -hmm. we're the tribe that invites all people and doesn't exclude. We're the tribe that loves our neighbors and puts the interests of outsiders ahead of our own. And that makes the Christian tribe, or it should make the Christian tribe, stand out from every other tribe on earth. So in a way, we can use the concept of being part of a tribe as a force for good. Yes. I think that you can do tremendous good when you have deep empathy, not just for people who are inside of your tribe, but also those who are outside of your tribe, those who you want to draw in. And again, like this is something that we see inside of our church life. 
especially when we become far less fixated on national level politics and become far more fixated on what's happening locally. That's mm-hmm, been one of our mm-hmm. goals as a church is to be the kind of church that our community would be sad if we disappeared, if we left, because we did so much good. And the good that we're able to do is precisely because we are a tribe who can work together, who can work collectively to bring about something that a single individual can't do. Yeah. What do you think creates tribes? I mean, what I'm thinking about with that question is whatever your political persuasion is, I would call myself of the tribe of libertarians, right? And there's the GOP and then there's the Democratic Party. And then you might just have people who consider themselves progressive versus considering themselves conservatives versus nationalists. And already I'm only listing terms that are political in nature, but we can have tribes that are not necessarily or inherently political in nature. They could just be tribes of like people who are interested in raising puppies. <laughs> yeah. And I, I, that's funny. I'm not just randomly picking something. There are people who are in communities who are puppy raisers for like seeing eye dogs, right? Yeah. To raise yeah. for seeing eye dogs, something like that, right? So there are people who we find our tribe like, oh man, these people are, I like them. They love dogs. I love dogs, that kind of thing, right? But what creates a tribe? And like to some extent, it's like, well, anything could be called a tribe if you just call it a common interest. But what makes it into like, hey, this is my tribe or in the direction of tribalism? I think one of the things that fundamentally makes you a tribe is, first of all, community. It's having a web of relationships. And of course, that web of relationships, like you just said, might form around a mutual interest or it might form around a mutual faith or it might form around a mutual political ideology or it might form around a ethnic identity or it might form around a socioeconomic identity. And so tribes can form around a lot of things. I think the reason why we're tribal is, I mean, just go back to the earliest days of humanity, the hunter-gatherer societies. If you are a individual out in the savannah, let's say, you cannot live by yourself for a number of reasons. One, we all have limited knowledge. I can't know everything. I have lots of toilets in my house. I can't tell you how those toilets work. (laughs) And I don't want to know how the toilet works. If I have to know how a toilet works, I'd have to make space (laughs) in my brain from other things that I know. But the beauty is that we live in a society where there are plumbers and they know how it works. That's how tribes work. Knowledge is shared. Knowledge is not owned or held in a single person. Knowledge is held in a community. So that person in the Savannah, they need the tribe because someone in the tribe knows how to forage. Someone in the tribe knows how to skin animals. Someone in the tribe knows how to hunt and they can gather those collective skills for the collective common good. But the other reason why we have tribalism, at least in the ancient world, was self-defense. You have all kinds of external threats. Maybe it was wild animals. Maybe it was food shortages. But of course, you also have the threat of other human tribes that want to maybe conquer your tribe and take what you have so that they can have more food and they can have more resources. And so being in a tribe is also defensive. It makes sure that when rough days come, I've got people around me who are going to provide for me. When I get elderly and old and I can't care for myself, there's going to be someone there who's able to care for me. When I'm an infant and I can't care for myself, there's going to be parents in a community around me to care for me. And so that's why we have to have tribes. But you can also, again, see how the dark side starts coming into play. Because if I'm in a tribe, all of the incentive structures are set up for me to agree with the tribe, to think along with the tribe, and to not have anything that disconfirms what the tribe says. And so if the tribe believes that that tribe down the road is evil and they're powered by demons and they're, they're awful, well, every incentive is not for me to question that. Every incentive is for me to agree with them and go along mm. with them. Do you think there are things worth being tribal about versus things that are not? <laughs> like, well, for example, sports, right? Like, yeah. at the end of the day, like, 
how much of our identity is wrapped up in the Philadelphia Eagles or the New England Patriots or whatever. Because the Kansas City Chiefs, in my case, which yes, right, okay, that's a good try. People should consider joining that one. We're winning a lot. <laughs> that's true. So, like, no, seriously, like those are tribes that you and I might say, all right, well, we might be frustrated with each other because we argue about which quarterback is better or which one is, you know, whatever. But like on the other hand, you've got things like race, ethnicity, religion. Those things are, uh, I don't know, can we be tribal about that? Is it okay to be tribal about sports, but not religion? Where do you Well, let's think? use the sports example just for a second. Again, there have been some really interesting studies around this. There were some studies that were about, I think it was Yankees fans and Boston fans. There's a big rivalry there, Ooh. apparently. I'm not a big baseball guy. However, what they discovered was that both groups had very negative assumptions about the other group. Boston fans said that Yankee fans were arrogant, they were loud, they were annoying, and so they had all these negative assumptions. But then what they did is they looked what happened when a Boston fan actually made a relationship with a Yankees fan, and they got to know someone who was a Yankee. And over time, they realized, oh, if you actually know someone who's a Yankees fan, and they're not the kind of person that you think they are, your negative views of them begin to shift over time. And again, so this is the key. We can have a kind of tribalism that doesn't take itself too seriously. I'm a Chiefs fan, but I don't think ill of you if you're a Denver Broncos fan or if you're an Oakland Raiders fan. I don't think you're a bad human. And so there's something What fun about, about a Dallas Cowboys fan? <laughs> well, if you're a Philadelphia guy, I'll let you speak to that one. <laughs> however, <laughs> however, again, this is why I'm trying to highlight yeah. that kind of everyday forms of tribalism, a fandom, those can be healthy, normal things. It's when they begin to do two things. One, when we attach them very close to our identity, such that any attack on my tribe or anyone who my tribe says is on the outside is an attack on me. But number two, the other big problem is what happens when we begin to think with the tribe. Whatever the tribe says is true. I mean, I'm seeing this online all the time. I see it on Twitter, especially, where you have people who are essentially forming mobs to cancel one another over all sorts of different topics. And if you've ever had this happen and you've seen it happen, one thing you'll discover is that the people in the mobs actually don't seem to know much about what they're talking about. The only reason why they're attacking X person is because everybody else in the mob is attacking that person. Again, there's a great story from Jeopardy that I think illustrates this point. There's a Jeopardy contestant who he had won multiple rounds. And at the end of his third round, he held up this awkward looking number three. It wasn't like a normal three. It was kind of like an okay sign. And there was a tribe of former Jeopardy contestants who saw it for what it was. It was a white nationalist, white supremacist hand signal. And so they were very concerned. They wrote to Jeopardy, say, you have to kick this guy off, but they didn't. And they went public and the guy said, hey, I'm not a white supremacist. I'm not a part of anything that has to do with white supremacy. I think that's evil. They didn't believe him. They went to the Anti-Defamation League, which is famously litigious. They'll sue anyone. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the ADL looks into it and they say, hey, that's actually not a white nationalist hand signal. And by the way, he held up a one after the first victory, a two after the second victory, and a three after the third victory. And that's clearly what he was doing. <laughs> and the people inside this group, they said that they were being gaslit by the ADL. Now, there were people inside the group who were, I mean, these are highly intelligent people. These are former Jeopardy contestants. So why were they all duped? Well, it was because they were thinking with the tribe. They were thinking along the lines of the tribe. No one in the tribe seemed to slow down and ask the confirming question, hey, are we really sure that that's what this guy was doing? Yeah, that is a very fascinating story in part because you just shake your head and be like, wait, these are Jeopardy contestants and like, people want to believe what they see is true. You even bring up, I believe, Jonathan Haidt's work on the elephant and the rider and yeah. confirming beliefs about 
we believe first and then we look for things to confirm beliefs. I want to switch to a question about one of the problems with tribalism. And you have, early on in your book, you have this phrase, tribalism cranks up everyone's anxiety. Mm. And you include people, not only the anxiety of what you're calling the crusaders, but also those being hunted, and then also those kind of watching it. So can you speak to that a little bit? Because I think the anxiety (laughs) piece is, there's a handful of books out there from sociologists and stuff that talk about us being and living in an anxious age. Mm. And I think anxiety, I mean, we hear it on the news about teens are depressed, have anxieties about all kinds of things, right? So the word anxiety is really important, I think, to connect to why is it that we're behaving these tribal ways. Well, tribalism does make us anxious. I mean, going back to my hunter-gatherer illustration, if you're in a tribe and you begin to have ideas or beliefs that don't align with the tribe, think about the anxiety you're going to experience. If I say what I believe, or if I say what I think, maybe I'll be excluded. Maybe I'll be cast out from the tribe. And if I'm cast out, I won't have food. I won't have community. Mm. I won't have what I need to live. And so tribalism is almost always embedded with anxiety. But to use the example you just drew up, I see three different kinds of anxiety. One is the anxiety of the crusaders. So you think about those Jeopardy contestants. They were anxious because they perceived a wrong and they needed that wrong to be fixed, to be solved, to be remediated in some fashion. And they had a deep anxiety that they needed to do this. Something had to happen. But of course, the guy, his name was Kelly Donahue, who held up the sign, he had anxiety (laughs) because he was being attacked and he was being publicly maligned. And so when you're on the receiving end of a tribe's attacks, you're experiencing anxiety. But there were also people in the group who saw that what these Jeopardy contestants were doing to Kelly Donahue, they saw this was wrong. They knew that it wasn't right, but they didn't want to speak up because they feared, again, that if I speak up, I'm going to be cast out from the tribe. I'm going to be castigated. I'm going to be thrown in with this Kelly Donahue guy. And I think that's where most people are. Most people aren't the ones who are actually being canceled or attacked. I mean, maybe I'm wrong, but I always ask people who are afraid of being canceled. I'm like, have you ever actually experienced anything that truly made you think you could get canceled? And like, well, no, not really. And most people aren't in the canceling mob. Again, that's a minority. There's people out there who are anxious. I've got to get this thing done. Most of us are just observers. And we're just fearful that if I make a single misstep, if I say a single wrong word, if I question a single thing, maybe I'm going to be the one who gets attacked. And when you're living in that kind of anxious system, it creates all kinds of malevolence. When I was a little kid, I think I was six years old, I remember I was walking down the street and this dog started barking at me and it wasn't just barking, it starts chasing after me. And I was absolutely terrified. And so I went running and screaming down the street for my mom. She must have heard me from the inside because she came running out and she gets right next to me and then she kneels down and she pets the dog. <laughs> now, <laughs> the dog probably wasn't trying to eat me and devour me like I thought he was. It might've just been a little chihuahua for all that I know. It was trying to play with me. But the point of the story is when you are anxious, like I was as a six-year-old thinking this dog wants to eat me, you will begin to think a chihuahua is a wolf. You'll begin to treat people as though they are a threat when they may not be a threat. And so when you're living in an anxious system, it just has this kind of reduplicating effect where everybody's experiencing more anxiety. Everybody's becoming more antagonistic towards others because when you're backed into a corner and you feel threatened, you're going to bite back. And so again, this is why resisting tribalism is so important because it actually helps us to become emotionally resilient. That's one of my goals is when people attack me that I don't come attacking back, that I don't see them as a wolf that wants to devour me, but I see them for what they are, which is a fellow human being made in the image of God who probably has very little 
ability to actually cause me (laughs) harm in my life. And when I do that, I'm not afraid. I don't have to treat them like a wolf. I don't have to bite back. I can actually walk in Jesus's commands to love my enemy, to bless those who persecute me. Hello, everyone. It's Doug from the Libertarian Christian Podcast. You might notice already that this recording sounds quite a bit different from usual. In fact, it probably sounds pretty crappy. Well, I'm doing this to show you something pretty amazing. As you might know, the guys over at Podsworth Media have been producing my show for several years, quite a while, hundreds of episodes. And now they have a brand new online app for taking rough recordings like this one and making them sound a whole lot cleaner and a lot more listenable in just a few easy clicks. So here are some of the core features. They remove background noise. It reduces plosives, which is really handy for me because I often forget to put my pop filter on before I do a YouTube video. I often forget to put my pop filter on before I do a YouTube video because pop filters look terrible when you're on camera. It fixes clipping. It removes clicks and pops. It fixes clipping. It removes clicks and pops. It evenly levels dialogue so that you don't have somebody talking really quietly and then somebody talking really loud because they're too close to the mic or too far away from the mic. It evenly levels dialogue so that you don't have somebody talking really quietly and then somebody talking really loud because they're too close to the mic or too far away from the mic. How do you use it? It's easy. You go to podsworth.com, you click get started. And because you're a listener to one of the Libertarian Christian Institute's podcasts, you can get 50% off your first order by entering the promo code LCI50. That's LCI50, and you will get 50% off your first order. If you are doing anything like a podcast, a video, a sermon, an audiobook, anything that's spoken word, you want to use podsworth.com and clean up your audio to be even more professional and polished. You want to use podsworth.com and clean up your audio to be even more professional and polished. What do you think the connection between the, what you call the my truth movement and tribalism is? The my truth movement? Yeah. You know, (laughs) again, this is something that you actually can see on both the left and the right. And we were talking earlier about Christian nationalism or wokeism, but we are living in a highly subjective era in which what I perceived to be true, what I feel to be true, is treated as though it is true. I remember years ago, I did college ministry and I was sitting across the table with with a gal and we were kind of talking about this and she was telling me, yeah, you know, truth is not objective. Truth is subjective. You see this one way, I see it a different way. Who's to say who's right? And I said, well, that's right. There are some circumstances where that's probably the case. I go, but that's not true of everything. Like, what about two plus two? That equals four. That's objective. Everybody agrees about that. And she kind of, you know, looked at me and thought for a second. She goes, no, that's not right. I said, well, what do you mean that's not right? She goes, well, (laughs) I want you to imagine for a second that there were two factories. Okay. And in factory one, there were two and a half machines. And in factory two, there were two and a half machines. Now I want you to imagine that those two factories, they went through a merger. And so they became one factory. And I said, okay. And she goes, so how many machines are there? And I go, well, there's five. And she goes, well, but there's only two factories. So one plus one equals two. And you're saying it's five. And I'm sitting here thinking, I'm like, what are we talking about? This is such a confusing illustration to try to argue that two plus two doesn't equal four. And as I walked away from that conversation, it began to make me realize that when we're living in a moment where no one can agree on what objective truth is, the only way to determine what truth is, to see who can get the loudest, who can become the most powerful, and whoever is the loudest and is the most powerful controls the conversation. And I think that's what we're seeing in public discourse, where people aren't really debating ideas with one another. They aren't talking about objective realities. They're just yelling and shouting each other down 
because they believe that, hey, power is going to ultimately be the key. Because once I have the power, my truth becomes the truth. As you, as you were starting that story, because I obviously read that in the book, and right now, James Lindsay is battling people like actual academics who say that two plus two can equal five mm-hmm. academically, not just in this weird story that your friend told you. Yeah. I'm like burying my face in my hands because I'm like, oh my gosh, this again. <laughs> this is two plus two doesn't always equal four. I wonder though that the whole my truth thing, let me give you my take on it. Maybe you'll agree or not. First of all, I don't like the phrase my truth because it gives up some of the game of like, well, wait, aren't we all in favor of finding the truth? Even if we can't agree that it can be ultimately found in some very specified and eternal kind of way, you can say, well, we're all on a journey to find it, right? Our knowledge is provisional and we're going to learn more. But it seems like people who want to use the phrase my truth is like my experience or my lived reality or whatever. And it seems to me that people are equivocating when they say the word truth, they want to communicate what they call their truth as if it's the truth, yeah. as opposed to more of a pluralist way of dealing with that, which in my main mind would be like, okay, well, so your truth is that two plus two equals something other than four. Actually, that's a, probably a terrible example, but like your relieved reality or your truth is that you've been discriminated against because of your skin color. All right. I'm a different skin color from you. Not you, Patrick, but just this theoretical conversation. I can say, okay, your experience of being discriminated against is part of the truth. We can work together towards something. But as soon as that person steps into the like, no, this is the truth. People of my skin color are discriminated against always. It's like, well, all right, now I can't battle you because, or I can't even engage you because I'm not even considered to have a truth worth talking about. Like the my truth on the other side of the aisle, so to speak, discriminated or diminished. Does that make sense? No, it makes perfect sense. And again, this is my point. When we don't have common ground, when there aren't shared truths across our culture that we can all kind of broadly agree, hey, this is a base level that we all agree upon, it becomes rhetoric. It becomes arguing over who gets to be right and who gets to be wrong, but not based on, again, any objective shared realities. And again, you see this on both sides. Another story I tell in the book was of a friend of mine who has a PhD in genetics and actually had some expertise in GMOs, Mm -hmm. genetically modified organisms. And this friend was grabbing lunch with another friend. And that other friend was telling my PhD friend that they weren't going to get the vaccine. And now my friend wasn't going to say, hey, you need to go get a vaccine. They weren't trying to have that argument. She goes, okay, well, that's really interesting. Like, tell me more about why you're not going to get it. And the friend at lunch said, well, it's because I've read that if you take this vaccine, you're going to become a genetically modified organism. It's actually going to change your DNA structure. Now, my friend said, okay, well, there might be some legitimate reasons not to take the vaccine and we could talk about that. But a (laughs) vaccine literally cannot turn you into a GMO. That's a very, very complicated process that's basically impossible to do in a complex biological structure like a human being. And her friend continued to argue and say, no, you don't know. It will turn you into a GMO. And my friend said, well, I've got a PhD in this, so I actually do know. And he says, oh, no, you don't know because the schools have all taught you wrong. They've all given you misinformation. You've been drawn into a conspiracy. I know the truth. And again, there was no shared sense of reality. There was no base upon which they could agree. And so at that point, again, it becomes rhetoric. Who can yell the loudest? Who can become the angriest? Or who can, you know, if you're on the left side of things, is who can be the most victimized? Who can be the most marginalized? They win the war. So, I mean, this is what tribalism does to us. We think along with the group and we believe the group's truth is the ultimate truth. And we argue loudly on behalf of it, whether or not there's any good grounds to do so. I had never thought about 
it's interesting you just use that conspiracy mindset, which is basically what the anti-GMO person was yeah. experiencing and sort of behaving like, is that that can be a type of tribalism in that like, well, I had sort of a Gnostic tribalism, like, well, I have the truth and I've understood mm. that you've been brainwashed through your academic credentials or you're paid to believe this or whatever, which, you know, to some extent that can be true in certain circumstances that people are paid to propagate certain quote unquote truths about the either efficacy of a vaccine or whatever. People are nefarious. There are bad people out there or people acting badly, if you will. Mm -hmm. But I'd never thought of the connection there between tribalism and conspiracy mindset. I think when it comes to the my truth thing, I actually think about it in our current cultural context. There's two groups that are very much so bought into the my truth mindset, the critical theory camp and the conspiracy theory camp and the structures of how they think and how they define truth and how they come to conclusions are actually very, very similar epistemic structures. They come to knowledge in very similar ways. One, of course, you're going to see more on the left. One, of course, you're going to see on the far right. But I think it's helpful to see how similar they are. Yeah, well, and you're not the first person to point out the familiarity of conspiracy thinking that critical theorists tend to engage in. Mm -hmm. We could probably just veer off on that whole discussion for another hour, but... Um, well, I mean, I, yeah. I've experienced this personally. I mean, again, going back into the downsides of tribal thinking is tribes tend to act in one mind, which is why they can become rather mobbish <laughs> over mm -hmm, time. Mm -hmm. Again, I've experienced this personally. Just recently, this is on the internet, and the internet is one of the most tribal places in the world. I don't know if you can call it a place or not. One of the most tribal places, <laughs> though. <laughs> I was critiquing some people who were acting very much so with a mob mentality around a book that had recently been released. And because I critiqued them for acting like a mob, they in turn acted like a mob and attacked me back. And in the midst of this, a group of them began to tweet that I was receiving royalties from the book that I was defending, which was a bizarre claim because I, you know, I don't know many authors who share their royalties with other authors who worked on part of the book. And I couldn't even figure out where it came from. I'm like, where, where did you get this idea that I'm getting royalties? I mean, we don't even keep royalties for our own book, much less I'm taking royalties from someone else. But the only way they could explain why I would defend this book, because they didn't think I should be defending it, was that there was some sort of nefarious conspiracy happening behind the scenes in which I was being financially remunerated for internet support of this particular book. <laughs> I really want to know the book. Can you tell me off air? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'll tell you off air. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Well, man, that's crazy. I mean, obviously, Twitter, even now, after the Musk purchase, is still tribal. Oh, yeah. Right? I mean, people are going to do that. It's going to be an activity that we gravitate toward, whether for good reasons or bad. I mean, you can, there are tribes that get together for the good of others, right? That are not just for the good of their tribe which you and I would say is a very gospel-oriented way of being a tribe. And so I think that's where we should probably continue the conversation, which is how does the gospel fit in and relate to solving the problems created by tribalism? Well, I think there's good news because if you look at your church and you're disturbed by the tribalism that's happening there, maybe there's political tribalism in your church. People on the left and the right can't be in the same small group together. They can't worship together. Yeah. Or maybe your church has gone full throttle. They've got the rainbow flag out front or they've got the MAGA flag <laughs> out front. They've gone to one camp or the other. And so 
I know people are feeling exhausted by tribalism in the church. And I don't think tribalism should be there. But the good news is that tribalism is nothing new in the church. Back when Paul was planting churches across the Mediterranean, the main challenge that he faced was tribalism. And it was tribalism between two ethnic groups, the Jews and the Gentiles. And if you read through his letters, you'll see this theme pop up again and again and again. But my favorite place comes in Ephesians 2, right after he talks about how we've all been saved by grace. He then goes and he says, oh, and also you Jews and Gentiles, the dividing wall that's existed between the two of you, it's been torn down in the body of Christ. And so he was arguing that through his death, Jesus not only rescued us and gave us salvation through his death. He was bringing together two groups, which historically could not unite, historically cannot sit in the same room with one another and worship alongside one another. And at the end of Ephesians, he starts talking about how our enemies are the powers and the principalities. So spiritual forces of darkness. And what he's trying to get at, I think there is in Rome, people organize themselves around their ethnic identities. And that was how the world, that was how the demonic powers wanted people to organize themselves. But when the church came together and they said, we're not going to organize ourselves around ethnic identities. We're not going to have dividing lines between Jews and Gentiles. Their life together, Jews and Gentiles loving one another and caring for one another was a witness to the powers of the world that Jesus really was king and that Caesar really was not king because Caesar couldn't do that. Only Jesus can bring Mm, people together. And in the exact same way in our churches, we need to have people on the left and the right, people of different ethnicities who are able to come into churches together and worship alongside one another as a witness to the demonic powers that exist inside of our world and saying, hey, you don't organize us. Maybe out there, the left and the right can't be in a small group together. Maybe out there, you don't see black people and white people spending a lot of time together. But here in our congregation, Jesus brings those people together and it shows his power because he has broken down the dividing wall. How do you think that works for Christians who want to regard those outside the tribe of faith, right? The tribe of Jesus. I could hear somebody pushing back and say, well, yes, absolutely. 100% for everybody who becomes a Christian and is part of our tribe. We need to show and demonstrate that it doesn't matter what race or ethnicity or language we speak or political angle or whatever. We can all come together and love each other. And we need to make sure that everything within the body of Christ is not tribal. Mm -hmm. But when it comes to, well, what about the person outside the church who is tribal Mm -hmm. and they are sort of either anti-church, anti-religion, anti-Christian culture, anti-whatever, pick something, right? How do we regard them? Because it seems like you could understand Paul saying that, well, once you're in the church, this stuff has to go away. But outside the church, we can still sort of divide people up by tribe. I would maybe go to the book of Romans, which again has this same theme about how Jews and Gentiles can come and worship together. If you read Romans backwards and you start in Romans 16 and 15, the last few chapters, Paul is speaking again and again about Jews and Gentiles coming together in Christ. But when we go to the beginning of Romans, if you know your Romans road, you know, there's this famous passage where Paul says that while we were still enemies of God, Christ died for us. And he's making a point to a church that's tempted by tribalism. He's saying, hey, when you were on the other tribe from Jesus, when you were the outsider, when you were the enemy, what did he do? Did he separate from you? Did he attack you? Did he go on the offense? No, he laid down his life for you. He sacrificed himself for you. And I think that's the pattern that we have to follow in our lives towards people who are outside the church. Jesus wants us to lay down our lives for them. Jesus wants us to love our enemies, bless those who persecute us and seek 
their good and their welfare. Another great example of this is in Jeremiah 29. You think about the Israelites who lived in Jerusalem. Babylon comes along. They not only conquer Jerusalem, they murder many people's family members. They sexually assault their family members. They raise the city. They burn it to the ground. They lose their life savings. They lose their location, their home, their identity. And then Babylon takes the kind of cream of the crop and moves them to Babylon, from Jerusalem to Babylon. And so it's no shock that you have these prophets who at the time are saying, hey, we've got to fight against Babylon. We've got to, we've got to mm. resist Babylon. Mm-hmm. And in Jerusalem, they're trying to start rebellions against Babylon for a second time simultaneously. And Jeremiah says, that's not what God wants. And in Jeremiah 29, he writes a letter to the exiles living in Babylon. And he tells them to build vineyards, build houses, you know, give your sons and daughters away in marriage, be fruitful and multiply. It's Genesis 1 language. And then he says, for in the welfare of the city of Babylon, you will find your own welfare. That is a shocking statement to say that your welfare will be in the welfare of the nation state that just slaughtered your family. <laughs> but that's the kind of attitude I think we living as exiles in our own cultural context have to take on. God has called us to seek the welfare of Babylon. And so having an antagonistic attitude towards those who are outside the church just doesn't jive with the God who died on a cross for his enemies. Hi, everyone. This is Jacob Daniel Winograd. If you're enjoying this podcast, you may want to check out other shows in the Christians for Liberty Network, such as my podcast, The Biblical Anarchy Podcast, where we seek to live counterculture to the empire of man by instead seeking the kingdom of God, where we unpack what the Bible teaches about government, authority, and human relationships. The Christians for Liberty Network is dedicated to bringing a variety of content you love, just like you're hearing on this episode right now. Okay, I'll let you get back to it. Then you can check out the Biblical Anarchy podcast. So in your church, The Crossing, what have you done? There's some practical ways that you've shared in your book, and I want to hear one of them here, that you've done to sort of cross the tribal line and to bring people into this more inclusive I hesitate to use that word to some extent because it can have certain connotations, but a less tribal mentality and bringing people together so that they can see that Christians can be the types of people who don't create more tribalism. Yeah, you know, the entire third part of the book is just littered with practical suggestions of how to do this in your personal life and in your church life. It talks about speaking to people with kindness. It talks about admitting when you're wrong, admitting when you don't know. We talk about the key of as the subtitle says, making sure that your allegiance to Jesus is your prime allegiance. That is your chief identity, such that you might also have a loyalty to Republicans or Democrats, but that's a secondary or tertiary or or even further down kind of identity, such that when you're talking with someone who doesn't match your political ideology, you don't see them as an enemy because, again, your chief tribe is Jesus, and Jesus doesn't see them as your enemy. One way we've tried to do this that's been really effective is generosity. This actually goes back to the idea of grace. I mean, how did God respond to us when we were enemies? He responded by giving us a gift. He responded by giving us Jesus. He responded by giving us grace. And that's what tore down the tribal wall. And in the same way, I think churches can tear down the tribal walls in their community by being incredibly generous. One example of that in our church is basically every Easter, we try to do something that makes a huge difference in our community. I mean, our church is great at serving. And so we serve year round. It's not like a one-shot thing, but we try to do something extravagant for our community. And so I could tell you lots of examples, but here's one. A few years ago, we decided that we wanted to partner with a group called RIP Medical Debt. Now, just a little bit of context. 
medical debt in our state is a huge problem. And if you have crippling medical debt, it can be hard to find housing. It can be hard to find a job. The creditors will not only hound you, they'll begin to hound your family. And so it's a miserable situation to be in. And this group, RIP Medical Debt, what they do is they buy $1 of debt for a penny. So anybody who makes, I think, under two times the poverty line, they are able to buy their debt because those people will probably never pay their debt off. So the bank's just trying to get as much as they can. <laughs> right. And so they can buy a dollar of debt for literally penny a penny on the dollar. Yeah. A penny on the dollar, literally. And so you can cancel a lot of debt with a little bit of money. And so we went to our church and we said, hey, what would it be like if we kind of declared a jubilee? You know, jubilee is this biblical image of all debts being canceled, which ultimately points to Jesus who cancels the debt of our sin. And we said, what if we declared a jubilee in Columbia where we live and tried to cancel all of the medical debt in our city? And so we did a big giving campaign around that. And it turns out that we hoped we were going to be able to cancel the debt of our city. And we were wrong. We didn't just cancel the debt of our city. We ended up canceling the debt of 33 counties in our state. We were able to cancel something like $43 million of medical debt in the state of Missouri because people gave around $430,000 at our church to this cause. What happened after that, though, was that those tribal walls began to come down. We started getting letters in the mail and phone calls from people saying, hey, I'm not a Christian. Hey, I, I'm gay. Hey, I'm, I don't know anything about Jesus. Hey, whatever it was in their life, they said, why did you do this for me? I don't even understand it. And we would tell them the exact same thing. We'd say, hey, we did this for you because it's what Jesus did for us. And as I talked to people one-to-one, I remember talking to an atheist who said, hey, I haven't considered Jesus in years. But when I saw what your church did with medical debt, it made me think twice. And now I'm mm -hmm. thinking maybe I do need to consider the gospel. Maybe I do want to check out church. That's what generosity does. We weren't doing it as an evangelistic strategy. We weren't doing it for publicity. We were just doing it because that's what Jesus calls us to do, yeah. to be radically generous with our wealth and our resources, not just inside our community, but outside. Well, and you were also practicing what many on the left would call social justice. Yeah. You weren't using the government to do it, at least not the way you're telling the story. And yet you're serving justice for the poor. Yeah. Well, and interestingly, that goes back to my point where I said, one of the big risks inside the church right now is that our fixation on federal politics so many, not just Christians, people in general, they know what's going on in Washington, D.C. They know what's going on in the Senate. They know what's going on in the White House, but they don't know what's going on in their own backyard. There was a novel by Charles Dickens, and in it, he tells the story of this lady named Miss Jellyby, and she has all these children who live in her house, and she's terribly neglectful of them, unkind to them, doesn't pay attention to them. But she is also terribly concerned about orphans living in Africa. And so she's constantly sending these orphans in Africa money and letters and care and concern while ignoring the kids who are right there in her house. And I think that's what we do when we spend all of our time and energy reading about what's happening in Washington, where we have very little power, where we have personally, I mean, most individuals, almost no influence, and we're ignoring what's happening in our own backyard, the place where we could actually make a difference if we used our time and our resources to bring shalom, to bring goodness in our communities. Is that's another like main goal of the book is to get people to stop getting, just leave the horse race in Washington behind and instead focus on what you can do locally where you can actually make a difference. Well, Patrick, I really appreciate what your church is doing, what you've done with your and Keith's book, Truth Over Tribe. I especially like the subtitle, Pledging Allegiance to the Lamb, Not the Donkey or the Elephant. There's a handful of reasons why that phrase is really important to me as a libertarian Christian and as simply a Christian. And 
So I really appreciate you taking the time to come on and talk about this. Where do you prefer people buy your book? Is there a bookstore or do you just Amazon okay? What do you recommend? The book should be available at any bookstore that you prefer to shop at and people can go there. Awesome. Well, thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. This has been great. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast. If you liked today's episode, we encourage you to rate us on Apple Podcasts to help expand our audience. If you want to reach out to us, email us at podcast at libertarianchristians.com. You can also reach us at LCI Official on Twitter. And of course, we are on Facebook and have an active group you are welcome to join. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Libertarian Christian Podcast is a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute, a registered 501c3 nonprofit. If you'd like to find out more about LCI, visit us on the web at libertarianchristians.com. The voiceovers are by Matt Bellis and Catherine Williams. As of episode 115, our audio production is provided by Podsworth Media. Check them out at podsworth.com.